And we felt with rates coming up and rents not growing at that same pace, we couldn't really be aggressive in the New York City market unless prices came down to reflect that new reality, which of course they didn't. And you know, come the beginning of 2016, we ended up finding markets we felt had a bigger trajectory for growth over the next three to five years. And that led us to downtown Yonkers and Bayonne, New Jersey. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the fourth season of Ready to Scale. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. Real estate investing is not rocket science, but it's not a fairy tale either. It's an incredible investment vehicle that builds and grows wealth. I have done it, and this is why so many of the wealthiest people in America and in the world, actually, invest in real estate as well. Listen in every week to learn about all the different real estate asset classes, which strategies experienced and successful investors use to live their best lives and the processes to do it. Don't reinvent the wheel. Just listen in every week to grow your knowledge along with me and to move your finances to a place where you can live an extraordinary life. This show is sponsored by my company, Blue Lake Capital, where we help passive investors grow their wealth through large multifamily investments and funds. To learn more about my company and invest in with me, visit www.bluelake-capital.com. Welcome to Ready to Scale Season 4. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Ready to Scale. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman, broadcasting from the very gray Providence, Rhode Island. Today on the show, I'm hosting Avi Abadi. Avi is the principal and co-founder of Core Investment Group and the president of AMS Acquisitions. So his focus is on acquiring and developing commercial properties. He previously worked at Crown Acquisitions, a New York City investment firm. And with AMS, Avi has built a portfolio of over 2 million square foot throughout New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. And AMS development portfolio consists of $2.5 billion in total capitalization. That's pretty impressive. And on a personal level, Avi holds a BS bachelor degree in business from Yeshiva University. Avi, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe before we kind of get started and dive into the conversation about assets, process, and strategy, maybe you can share with us how you find yourself in real estate. What was your path from Yeshiva University to buying assets and developing assets? Sure. So I was actually my year after studying in Israel. So, you know, after I graduated high school, I spent a year in Israel. I came back and that summer before college, I guess some people, you know, do everyone does their own thing. I ended up getting two internships, one at Merrill Lynch at a wealth management and one at Besson and Associates as you know, investment sales and the brokerage. And I guess my time in both of those, I kind of was drawn much more to real estate. I think when I first saw my first setup on a deal, I got very excited. Oh, we could buy this property, we can improve it, we can improve the NOI and the returns. And something drew me to that. And since then, I was you know, very much attached to real estate. You know, I guess the fact that it's also tangible assets and working with your hands, so to speak, in terms of really bringing these properties up to their potential was something that, you know, I was very attracted to. 
All right. And when did that happen? When did you get your internship? Which year? That was the summer of 2007. Oh, wow. That's a very interesting time to be in real estate. I was a lawyer at that point back then. Very, very rocky and interesting times to be involved in commercial real estate. Sure. Yes, definitely. I was 19 years old at the time. And then, you know, being in Yeshiva University, once the fall semester started, it's really a full schedule. So, you know, you're there from eight, nine in the morning until six, seven at night, sometimes later. So there wasn't much of, uh, you know, school at night and then working during the daytime. So really, my work experience came usually in the summers. And from the next summer, I ended up working in uh, residential real estate. And I stayed there for two summers. And then I ended up going after I graduated to Crown Acquisitions on the commercial acquisition side. Got it. And the rest is history. Awesome. Let's talk a little bit about the assets that you've chosen to invest in. You pretty much do almost everything under the sun. So you're involved in office and retail, residential, ground-up development. And obviously, we're in a very interesting period right now. And COVID is still a thing. And I don't think anyone thought that it would last that long. But how did the different assets that you're involved with, different asset classes have fared during COVID? Were there, you know, obviously office and retail, I'm assuming, are not doing as, as well as others. But what can you share from your perspective? If you can talk about that, that would be great. Sure. If you don't mind, I'll rewind a little bit just to talk about yeah. the strategy of how it kind of brought us to where we are currently. When we started on started AMS acquisitions in 2012, it was really a focus on New York City. The strategy mainly was finding areas of big growth potential. You know, we'd look at these areas with hoping for a good growth trajectory, trying to get into these markets on the earlier side. And where we felt if we're there on the earlier side, we target the best located assets within those markets we feel will grow because of certain factors. We get in, we know what we're getting. It could be five, six, seven, eight percent return. If the market takes, great. If it doesn't, we know what we have. And God forbid if there's any type of correction, you know, we're not too over leveraged where we feel we have good downside protection. So we like to call it the low risk, high potential reward model. So we feel comfortable with our base case. You know, nothing, there's worse things in life than getting, you know, six, seven percent return. And from then we had our first market was Ridgewood Queens. We ended up buying there in 2013. Everyone was focused on Bushwick at the time. They share the same avenue in Myrtle Avenue. Just one is a little bit more east than the other, and they share the same train line. So we felt Myrtle Avenue on the Ridgewood side was a safer neighborhood, was a little bit more sleepy, but we felt that it can really grow. There's a good retail landscape there and safe neighborhood, a good transportation. We felt as people get priced out of Bushwick, they would roll in. We bought an off-market deal. Our first deal we ever purchased was eight apartments and three retail stores on a nice corner spanning almost the entire block. And we were buying it off-market at an ACAP. We were making you know 11% return cash on cash year one. And we had hoped if the market grows, great. What we didn't know is that our rents were going to double in a year and a half. Hmm. And the building that we bought actually doubled in value. And as we saw people coming into the market, you know, about a year and a half, two years, two and a half years later, 
paying four caps, you know, when that started happening, we knew we were stopping to buy in that market. But we had bought in Bed-Stuy in Upper Manhattan, similar type of strategy where we, you know, we're looking for that, that growth, but also there's some value add as well. The Ridgewood building, we did the units, we, you know, put in much nicer finishes and, you know, we're hitting those nice rents with the new demographics coming in. Come 2015, we had done some co-GP on development deals and high-end condos and you know luxury condos also, Class A office in Connecticut, about half a million square feet there. And then another deal we did in Connecticut office deal as well. So during that time of 2012 to 2015, that's what we were doing. And then once really December 2015 came around, rates had ticked up, I think it was around 50 basis points or so. And at that same time, rents, we felt in our product and our properties rather, and and a lot of the markets of, of New York City were either plateauing or even sometimes in some areas dipping. And we felt with rates coming up and rents not growing at that same pace, we couldn't really be aggressive in the New York City market unless prices came down to reflect that new reality, which of course they didn't. And you know, come the beginning of 2016, we ended up finding markets we felt had a bigger trajectory for growth over the next three to five years. And that led us to downtown Yonkers and Bayonne, New Jersey. And in those markets, we targeted, for example, in Yonkers, there's a Metro North station right there in the downtown. You're on the waterfront. You're under 30 minutes away from Grand Central. Rents in that market compared to what they are in Ridgewood or Bed-Stuy or Bushwick were much lower. And the commute time was much faster, in some instances, 50% closer and we targeted the best assets in that market. Didn't matter whether it was multifamily, office, retail, or land. If we felt that that asset type had good growth potential in that market and that we would buy that asset type. It was more, much more of a market play. And again, we did have experience on, on the multifamily side. We had experience in the retail. On this type of retail, we've always liked to focus on retail where food and beverage can afford the rents and more of a neighborhood style retail prices. So really on the low side, as low as $13 a foot, you know, we have tenants paying that to as high as maybe 100, 110. And how did those assets, how were they doing during COVID? Is it more of, you know, the assets that were in a good location because that was basically the play in the strategy. Are they doing better than others or it's really based on an asset class where multifamily is stronger than retail perhaps? What would you see on, on your end? Sure. So some of our retailers have been fine. They didn't even ask for a, a break. Some of them had asked for a break in the beginning and now they're more back. Mm-hmm. So we have Dunkin' Donuts and we have banks and we have, you know, some local shops as well. And for the most part, they supermarkets, you know, they've been fine or gotten to be fine, thank God. And we kind of look at the situation as we we kind of dodge the bullet a little bit, you know, compared to some other people who might have having trouble. For example, on the multi-side, our rents in Ridgewood and Bed-Stuy have definitely dipped, I think up to 20%, mm-hmm. but we weren't highly leveraged. We bought them at great basis and you know, we're still able to pay our expenses and our mortgage and even have some positive cash flow. Not as much as we'd like, but you know, we were able to stay safe. In Yonkers, for example, we had a very interesting building across the street from the train on the corner on Main Street, where we have 25-foot ceiling heights, 1,400-square-foot lofts. And while we bought that in January 2017, since then you had RXR, Avalon Bay, China Construction, Mill Creek, a lot of the larger developers 
plant their flags there. Excel is also there as well, or they're developing now. And during COVID, it's my understanding that a lot of those assets that were built new had a lot of trouble with rents and with their tenants and occupancy levels. For us, we were holding maybe we had one vacancy at most times we we're 100% leased. Our rents actually gone up because of the nature of the units where you know they were very large. So people could work. They're actually zoned live work. So we do have about 20% of our units are companies. So you know, thank God that's done well. Office has been a little bit more challenging, I would say. Definitely across our portfolio, whether it's the class A or the smaller boutique office. It's definitely been more challenging. We've had tenants leave. We've had some newer tenants taking smaller spaces. So it's still changing. I think there's still a ton of potential tenants sitting on the sidelines waiting to see. You know, they're seeing that most of their staff can work remotely. And if that's the case, they're going to continue playing it out until, you know, they feel a need to move. Obviously, some companies are on the move already. They're taking up space. They're taking advantage of the New York market. But, you know, every tenant is different. And currently, right now, we have a building for lease in downtown Yonkers, right across the street from the train. We have beautiful 12,000 square foot floor plates with floor to ceiling windows that look over the, the Hudson River and the Palisades. And Lionsgate is opening, hopefully, this month down the block from us, a big studio. So, multiple studios. So, hopefully, that market in downtown also picks up for the office tenants. Got it. Okay. Very interesting. Are you considering to repurpose some of the office space to basically adjust the demand for maybe a newer flexible office model or maybe a different purpose altogether? Or are you still waiting to see when tenants you know, are going to come back, when companies are going to come back full-time because you see it in the horizon? It's a good question. We like our floor plates for office and it doesn't necessarily have to be you know, traditional office you know, this could be medical space. This yeah. could be for a school. Their floor plates are very open, very few columns. So it could really cater to a lot of things, even a catering hall. You know, we can create event space there as well. So there's a lot of flexibility. There's definitely a tremendous amount of pent-up demand for events. And when you have space that overlooks the Hudson River with the Palisades and floor-to-ceiling windows, you know, you go up there, it's something very, very nice. So there's definitely demand there as well. So we, we have the flexibility to be able to show to a, an array of different types of uses and tenants. Got it. All right. Let's switch gears and talk about the process of ground up development. So you're doing that as well. Can you walk me through your company's process of developing assets? Sure. So... <laughs> Depends on the market, depends on the area, but most of our development that we've done has been in Jersey in terms of the, the rentals, but we've also done the, we've partnered on condo developments in the city. I can tell you that we're not looking at many more condos. Mostly it would be the rentals. And personally, with my new company, Cove Investment Group, we are dealing with more value add existing multi. So I'm personally in my new venture not doing as much development. And I think in the future, even though it's in the Southeast and I'm based in New York, you know, as we buy more in these markets, we'll be able to do development. We definitely like to own in a market before developing there. You get a much better sense of who your tenants are, what the leasing right. velocity is, and the real rent growth on the ground. So that's something potentially in the future. But currently, or in the past rather, I'd say we've developed in Jersey, and that was more of the rentals 
you know, wood frame construction rentals. And, you know, we've done well on deals there. And my partner, Mikey Mitnick on the AMS side is actually continuing to do more of those deals in the Jersey region. Personally, I've moved down south. I like the political atmosphere much better there. I think they're actually taking advantage of what's going on here in New York and in California by being much more pro-business and Mm -hmm. pro-development. So, you know, when it comes to actually going forward with more developments in the future, he's definitely the right guy for you to speak with. (laughs) Got it. All right. But if you wanted to speak about more developments or just in general about our development process, I can definitely speak not what I'm looking for now, but what we've done. Yeah, it's interesting because at least from my point of view, the cost of developing and maybe selling or owning right after or buying a 10, 15-year-old asset, the delta has shrinked significantly. And you know, one of the main differences is still the cash on cash, at least in the first 24 months. If you're developing, you shouldn't be expecting any immediate cash on cash because there's no income, obviously, until you're the building is, or the house or whatever it is that you're developing is ready and generating income. But it's interesting to see that the delta between the different ages of different assets is just, it's not as significant as it was, you know, before. So development is something that we're also, you know, looking into probably to expand into next year. So I definitely hear your, you know, thoughts about that. And I mean, value add can't be I mean, right now, it's that what yields the highest returns to us and to our investors. And so that's, that's interesting to hear it from, you know, your perspective as well. I want to talk a little bit about the strategy of uh, dealing with supply chain challenges, which, you know, we're both in the value add business. It's something we're both experiencing. What is your strategy when it comes to dealing with those challenges, you know, labor costs have gone up. There's a delay in shipping materials and costs has gone up as well. How do you deal with the challenges since COVID started? It's a great question. First of all, like you said, the prices have just gone up also. And one day it's one price and the next day it's another (laughs) price. Yeah. And it's really it's really about, you know, being able to procure the things that you need, the materials that you need. And, you know, the stronger the group that's procuring, the, obviously, the better handle they'll have on it. Not that they'll have a great handle, but at the end of the day, you know, you, you have to be working with the right people. Now, with that being said, it's tough. You know, you have to take into account when you're looking at deals, obviously, you want to make sure you're in a good location. You have a great asset. You have great bones. You know, there's a real path, A, for mark-to-market rents to do that. But also, the market itself, you want to make sure that you're buying into a market you feel will have continued growth and sustained growth in terms of jobs and rent, obviously. So I think those things can help you in terms of protection. But when you're underwriting these deals, you have to be able to sensitize where your your budgets can, you know, can they move 5, 10, even 15%? What would that look like to your deal? How would your debt be able to handle such swings? And when you do that, you get a good sense of, you know, I guess, how much cushion is there in the deal? Now. I think that's one thing that we're looking at. We're also looking at, you know, more of the 70% LTC type of loans, you know, max really 75, but we like to be in that 70 space because of these things. We want to make sure we're, we're protected on our leverage. And that's always been, you know, something that I've been focused on making sure we're not over leveraged. You know, like you spoke about earlier about, you know, coming in at 2007, 
you know, that was my first experience, you know, seeing what can really go wrong. So when you're walking out of the closing table with 110%, you know, things can definitely go wrong. So here it's, it's you know, similar. You have costs that can move and you want to make sure you're sensitizing your numbers to be able to have that. Now, that being said, a lot of the ground up developments could have a lot of issues if you're building two, yeah. 300 units at a time. You know, projects that could take, you know, six months to get everything can take, you know, a lot longer. So it's difficult. And you also touched upon the pricing, you know, per door is getting close to the replacement cost, which is definitely yeah. an issue. And I'm wondering, you know, five years from now, three years from now, you know, people's exit strategies and, you know, where you're selling at prices per door that were probably never penciled before where there, you definitely know that product is above the replacement cost. Yeah, exactly, on your exit. So what will happen, I'm not sure, but I do think that you know, one thing we can look at historically that the amount of deliveries has always been under what the demand has been. So again, the way I look at it is really asset-specific, market-specific. And if you're working in really investing in markets that are going to grow and continuously grow, terms of the jobs, you want to make sure, you know, you're buying supply demand imbalance type of areas where even though you might be above replacement costs at the end, you know, you'll have a good yield that you can do good cap rate to sell it and someone will buy it. You know, if you can pencil to five and a half, five and three quarter cap, maybe even a six cap, you know, someone's going to, you know, assuming that rates don't move too much, someone will end up buying that for that cash flow anyway. So it's definitely a tough environment. Again, these areas you know, haven't experienced that before where they're creeping up to those types of numbers, but it's, it's, a, it's a function of demand and the supply. So that's what's happening right now. All right. Very good analysis. And yeah, things are moving fast. I can tell that we passed on a deal that was 1980 vintage and the price per door was higher than deals that were 20, 25 years newer. And so in order to exit and make a profit and not a negative IRR, you would need to sell it at a ridiculous amount, which may be feasible, you know, six months or 12 months from today, but in five years, in three years, you know, we, we might go back to normal, quote unquote, and then it's going to be very hard to, you know, if you're buying at 250 or, or 280 a door and it's 1980 vintage in Atlanta, we don't see those prices for an 80s vintage. And so in order to make any profit, you'll need to sell it at over $300,000 a door. That's an insane you know, number for the Atlanta market where you can buy, you know, for 190000 you can buy a much newer asset. So things are definitely, you know, it's, it's crazy, but you always need to remember, like you said, you know, if you're not over leveraged, if you're looking at the exit price and you're making sure that those assumptions are reasonable, then you know that you're buying right. And it's really, really hard to look at five years from now and, and see it from a future lens because we're so used to see what, to experience things as they are now. That's, I think some companies may, investors may make that, you know, might make the mistake of feeling that there's resilience was, is going to keep going forever. And you want to plan for the worst case scenario and see if the deal still works. 100%. You know, and right now, it's also a function of liquidity. There's a tremendous yeah. amount of liquidity yeah. in these markets. The way I, I like to look at it, sometimes you need to step out and say, is this real? Is this, <laughs> are these, are these, is this type of growth you know, really happening? And, and are these prices really justified? And I like to compare it a little bit to, I think at the, around 2015, the end of 2015, 
a lot of investors flocked to the Bronx to buy multi. I'm not sure if you were so in touch with those markets then, but they were trying, they went to the Bronx to buy multifamily chasing yield. And maybe then, you know, they were getting six caps, maybe five and three quarter caps were in Manhattan. It was, you know, three and a half, four caps, maybe. So for yield, they went out there to the Bronx, but there was no real reason for rent growth, especially in these rent stabilized properties. And what happened was, you know, a short year, year and a half later, their price per door doubled. You know, if you were buying at 110,000 a unit, they went up to 220, even higher than that in some product. And what was driving it though? The yield. People were chasing yield. I think mm. they were chasing yield. Some people were, were chasing a story that, you know, that hopefully the Bronx was being built up and hopefully you're able to, you know, improve your tenancy and improve the rents. But then, you know, that remains to be seen, obviously, because of the rent laws. But, you know, maybe it could have happened. But basically at that point, it's not like the rent market when was jumping in the Bronx where the price per unit were jumping. Now, it's quite the opposite in these markets in the South where the actual market rent is jumping. And that's why the price per doors are going yeah. high. That's why, the, you know, that's why the yields are going down is also because, you know, people feel very safe with, with the multi. So you're getting, you know, yeah. those low cap rates. But again, you want to make sure that you're in these markets, I, I feel, that'll have sustained growth. If you look at a market like Raleigh, you know, the amount of jobs, yeah. the amount of people that are there, the, I mean, it's, it's extremely strong. And there's, you know, tons of reason to believe that it'll continue to stay strong. It doesn't have to grow at 10, 15, 20%, but it has to have, you know, good positive growth. And in terms of jobs and the tenants moving there, you know, you, you get a good feeling when you look at Raleigh, that you feel yeah. like you're investing safe. And as things continue to do well there, that you'll end up making a nice profit. So just got to be careful in navigating these markets. And another thing I see is a lot of people have been maybe priced out of those markets and have gone to tertiary or secondary markets where there might not be so much rent growth. And you might be chasing Ds and Cs or C minuses. And those cap rates have come down tremendously. I mean, you, you might be buying those at five caps, you might be buying in Raleigh at three, three and a half. And you're like, look, I'm getting a five cap. But those areas where there's not much job growth, there's no one, you know, no one really coming. There's no reason to believe that the future is, is, in, is in those markets. And you're just looking for a nice mark-to-market play, if there's a correction, usually those are the areas that get that hit yep. first. And those might have been trading at 10 caps and now they're down to five. You know, Raleigh, I don't see going back up to a, you know, eight, nine cap where they might have been a bunch of years ago because, you know, they've cemented themselves as a as a real job hub and a real tech hub. So, you know, I think that's those type of anchors like Apple building a billion dollar campus there. Oh, yeah will, you know, sustain that type of growth and job growth because we all know the types of jobs that come from that as well. So just got to be careful in picking your markets and, and your assets as well. Absolutely. I could not have said it better. It's definitely focusing where the demand drivers are strong and they keep growing and not just look at, you know, being too fixated on immediate yields or immediate cap rates because there's a reason why, you know, in remote markets where the tenant base is not solid, where there's no job growth and population growth, why the cap rates are higher. There's always a reason why they're higher. That was well said. Well, Avi, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us. We have arrived to the last part of the interview, which is the lightning round question. And question number one is, what's your favorite hobby? My favorite hobby. I love to play hockey. Mm. Hockey, ice hockey or just hockey? Ice hockey and sometimes roller hockey as well. Got it. All right. Interesting. What's the one thing that people don't know about you? 
I've given bar mitzvah lessons, <laughs> maybe. Ah. Are you still doing it? No, no, I haven't done that maybe in like 10 years or so. Got it. All right. What's your number one advice to investors that want to scale their portfolio this year and during 2022? It's a great question. I think it's to be disciplined. You know, you everyone has that certain goal with the, you know, 1,000, 2,000, 5,000, 10,000. Just be disciplined, stick to your numbers, stick to your underwriting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes, the, you know, I don't want to sound like the cliche, but it really is. Sometimes the best deals are the ones you don't do. So yeah. you just have to be careful and know that we're in a very strong growth market that, you know, who knows how long it lasts, but just be disciplined in your approach. Absolutely. Absolutely. Abby, what's your advice for living an extraordinary life? <laughs> You know, I think when you're working every day and you're trying to find deals, you know, there's a lot of things that can pass you by, you know, mm-hmm. whether you're married or you have kids or, you know, whatever it may be, just, you know, there's things in your life that you just have to and should be paying attention to all the time. And it's hard because you're, you're working and you try to support yourself and your family and trying to do and accomplish a lot. And the things that are around you and the closest people to you should always you know, live each day, you know, giving it your all to everything. You know, much easier said than done. But at the end of the day, you know, you might look back and you say, where did all that time go? Where did all those years Mm. go? Yeah, absolutely. All right, Avi, some of our listeners want to reach out to you and talk to you about investing. Where can they find you? So we have a website, coveig.com. So that's C-O-V-E-I-G.com. It has email addresses there. You can reach out to us and, you know, you'll find our portfolio, our strategy and information more about our company. So definitely feel free to reach out. Always happy to meet people. All right. Avi, thank you again so much for being here today. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Yes. Thank you very much. All right. That's it for today, guys. Be bold. Be great. Keep pushing forward and I'll see you on the next episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.